Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. How do we plan New England's present and future infrastructure around climate change? It's much cheaper to build things in the right place now uh, than it is to move them later. And if one wants to try to maintain the things that we have, it's smart to do it now because it'll cost less. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. This week, we're focusing on the many ways climate change and rising sea levels are affecting New England. We'll visit an artist who integrates her love of science into her data-driven paintings. Makes a story about climate change and human impact, whether positive or negative, ingrain that more in a cultural discussion rather than just being a scientific or politicized discussion. Plus, we'll visit eroding salt marsh islands, rivers and streams that are getting saltier, and we'll visit a place where the river meets the sea. It's a place called Head of Tide. It's sort of where one ecosystem ends and gives it up to another ecosystem. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This week on the show, we're digging into a problem that is bearing down on New England and threatening to reshape our geography, sea level rise, and its cause, climate change. Later this hour, we'll hear about how cities and individuals are preparing for that change. But first, what will the impacts of climate change look like in New England over, say, the next 10, 20, or even 100 years? Paul Andrew Mayevsky is the director of the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine. He's traveled around the world studying the effects of climate change and even has a peak in Antarctica named after him. Paul Mayevsky, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. How will rising sea levels affect us here in New England? Uh, It's a good question. Uh, It's a question that one really needs to answer in the short term and in the long term. We've already experienced a little bit over eight inches of sea level rise since about 1900. And looking to the immediate future, there will be continuing sea level rise. The estimates by international groups suggest that by 2100, sea level rise could be one to three feet. But that's 80 years away. In the next few years, however, there will be potentially small sea level rise. And obviously, people who live uh, in flood-designated regions are going to be impacted, but they'll probably be impacted even more by storm surges. And uh, certainly the frequency of storms and the amount of moisture in the air because of the warming of the Gulf of Maine is increasing. So in the near term, the big question is really frequency of storms. But when we begin to talk about where uh, development will occur in the future, how cities will change, where sewage systems should be, we really now need to be thinking about 2100 because you build things obviously for decades to come. And again, the rise could be one to three feet. But the eventual rise from the expected two degree centigrade rise could be considerably more than that, although it will likely take another 100 or 200 or 300 years after 2100. Some of the effects of climate change uh, that happen at the coast are the ones that we focus on because it seems so obvious that those effects will be felt 
near term as well as long term. What about the other effects of climate change that we see elsewhere in the region? Is is it mostly a, a coastal problem for us here? Climate change is impacting the entire state, the entire northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere, but in different ways in different places. A place like New England, in particular Maine, obviously in the long term, sea level rise becomes very important. In the short term, increased frequency of storms becomes important. Climate change is changing atmospheric sea level, atmospheric circulation patterns. And remember that the atmosphere transports moisture and uh, and heat and pollutants. With the warming that we have experienced uh, throughout Maine, and it differs from the coast uh, inland over the last 100 years, and the expected differs too, we're going to probably have an increased frequency of dramatic heating events right now when the temperature goes from about 74 to 79 degrees. There's a marked increase in the number of people who go to hospital as a consequence of of, uh, heat exhaustion, but the number of days expected to go over 95 degrees Fahrenheit over the next few decades is is going to rise quite significantly. We've obviously seen an influx of of Lyme tick disease. This is directly related to uh, the fact that the Lyme ticks can survive longer periods the winters are not as cold. This winter was relatively cold, but it's more of an anomaly. We should expect milder winters, potentially less snow. In general, Maine uh, should experience warming, increased moisture levels, increased frequency of storms, slow rise of sea level, and changes in the distribution of animals and, and, and plants. It's interesting because one of the things you seem to be charting is is a gradual warming that you can, at this point, predict with some certainty what we might see as far as sea levels over the course of the next 10, 20, 30 years. But you're also talking about a lot of uh, dynamic and volatile systems that are much harder to predict. How much of an impact is that going to have, that volatility, not knowing whether or not we'll have a, a hot summer Uh, a cold winter, not knowing the amount of moisture content that we're going to have one year to the next, it seems as though that's going to be as as damaging as as this overall warming of the planet that we've been charting for some time. Yes. uh, Certainly, when I mentioned sea level rise, I suggested that that might very well be gradual because it it takes a significant amount of change to release the ice from the Antarctic and and parts and Greenland in order to to raise sea level. But the instability in climate, which you're pointing to, yes, that is a very big issue. And that instability is not necessarily going to come in a gradual way. And and there's a, a, a big unknown that's lurking in the Arctic. It's methane, and methane is a greenhouse gas like CO2, uh, except that it has the heat-trapping capacity of about 30 times that of, of CO2. And if that starts to release at higher levels uh, than it is right now, that could be a, a very dramatic changing force in atmospheric circulation patterns, the length of summer in the Arctic, the length of, uh, obviously, summer in places like Maine. So you're absolutely right. When I said gradual, I was referring really to sea level rise in the next few years or few decades. But instabilities in climate, they're predicting how they will operate from year to year is not necessarily an easy thing to do. There are climate models, uh, which give us a rather general uh, linear view, but then we can also look at modern analogs and to, and past climate to get some idea of what we might expect from 
most of the years in the next decade, eight or nine out of the next 10 years. How do you think we should be thinking differently about the way we build along the coastline, given these trends? You mentioned earlier some of the the systems that could be very much impacted by rising sea levels, including water treatment systems and maybe some other things we don't think all that, that much about. Talk a bit, if you would, about how we might build differently to, to adapt and account for these changes. As you begin to expand uh, wet areas, then you need to obviously consider roads, uh, whether or not roads will be impacted. Sewage systems, far, far more complicated. Once you begin to penetrate sewage systems, obviously you have a significant problem. Once that water gets into the groundwater system, it can penetrate into freshwater wells. So towns, as they're beginning to plan their development, future development, and or beginning to think seriously about redoing or repairing their infrastructure, really should take these things into consideration. Bridges that are being built uh, near coastal areas or, or even uh, in general near rivers, one might want to think very carefully about how high high water can actually be uh, during storm surges uh, and how high sea level might be in the next 100 to 200 years. We build ideally bridges uh, that are going to last many, many decades, 100 or 200 years ideally. So where population centers begin to develop, where in fact we invest money in marine facilities, all of these things should take climate change, sea level rise, and storm surges very seriously. It's much cheaper to build things in the right place now uh, than it is to move them later. And if one wants to try to maintain the things that we have, It's smart to do it now because it'll cost less, but at the same time, you want to be building for 2,100 and 2,200. As you travel around the world uh, studying uh, sea level rise and climate change and its effects, are there places that are doing this this well, uh, looking and planning to the future that maybe New England could learn from? I, I guess there are a lot of different extremes. There are certainly places like Holland where they've been dealing with this for many centuries. And they are starting to try and keep up with the expected sea level rise. Uh, This is by continuing to do all of the sea level infrastructure or sea level protection infrastructure that they have been so famous for. There are Pacific Islands, which have already purchased land in other countries. They're very few feet above sea level, and they obviously could be washed over by storms and eventually will after 2100. Uh, be washed over completely, and they're going to move the country. Those are sort of the two extremes. You can stand in place and try to build, or you can leave. And in between, where many people are right now, uh, the thing to do is to think seriously about whether or not you're in a floodplain uh, and how, in fact, your community might plan to make sure that the, the area can stay as stable as it is now without overdeveloping it. Paul Mayevsky is the director of the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine. He joined us today from the studios of Maine Public Radio. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. But it's not just scientists who are drawing attention to the effects of climate change in our region. Jill Pelto is a scientist, but she's also an artist from Maine who uses scary data to shape some beautiful art. Jill Pelto, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, John. Instead of me trying to describe what your climate change art looks like, why don't you describe some of it for me? Tell me about what Gulf of Maine temperature variability looks like. So this piece has one uh, graphical trend line 
And that trend line is the change in temperature in the Gulf of Maine from um, 2004 to present. So really just, you know, over the last decade or so. And the trend shows a lot of variability, but the overall um, pattern is one of increasing temperature. And to illustrate how that temperature is going to be affecting the Gulf of Maine, I included four different species, clams, lobsters, shrimp, and cod. And these are all depicted swimming beneath that temperature line. And that temperature line looks like um, waves on the surface of the water column, and a, a fishing boat is kind of plowing into those waves, introducing that human element into the image. So it's kind of a scene of what the ocean looks like in Maine and what some of the key species are that we rely on. And of course, the one of the key species that you depict, cod, is something that we know has been very much affected by climate change. And, and you show these fish kind of swimming slightly upward as the temperature goes, but they're also changing in color. Tell me about that. It looks as though they're, they're becoming ghost fish to me. Yeah, that was the that was the message I was going for because the the story of the cod is that they've been greatly overfished in the Gulf of Maine and so they're likely being affected by by climate, by temperature and acidification, but the real reason they've been doing so so poorly in Maine is just because of, you know, way overfishing of that particular species. So that's why they disappear with time across the image. The temperature of the water, actually, right now in the Gulf of Maine, has been good news for the lobster population. The lobster fishery in the Gulf has been bigger than it's been in, in some decades. I think everyone knows this isn't going to last forever, but right now it's, it seems to be a good time for the lobster. How, how, do you, how do you depict the lobster here? I think the takeaway message I want for my piece is that what species are going to be facing is not always going to be increasing temperatures or decreasing temperatures, but more of a story of more variability. And so I think for any species, you know, the lobsters might be doing good right now, but what happens if there's a huge temperature swing? And so all of these species might have um, positive or negative reactions to changes in the ocean, but they might have trouble adjusting if these changes start becoming more dramatic, which is what we've been seeing over the last few decades. How did you begin to merge these two worlds of, of art and science and, and illustrate some of the work that you're doing in a way that, that people who appreciate art can, uh, can understand? So for me, this is really a lifelong pursuit of always being an artist and also always enjoying the outdoors and being curious about nature. And so I decided when I came to the University of Maine um, as an undergraduate student to double major in studio art and in earth science. And in doing so, that's what inspired me to try and communicate what I was learning in the classroom or seeing in science features online um, via my artwork, because the artwork has such a powerful, you know, visual, emotional component that you can't do in your, you know, very important, but more cut and dry science writing. So it inspired me to bridge those two fields and make the story about climate change and human impact, whether positive or negative, 
ingrain that more in a cultural discussion rather than just being a scientific or politicized discussion. It probably helps in the field that you study that the the changes are so dynamic that the graphs and charts that you use as the basis of your art are depicting something that is a very dynamic, very powerful, and somewhat scary story. Yeah, that's true. I think that it's, for me, easy to connect the two and to make that something that's emotional that, you know, I hope will kind of jolt people or inspire them. However, something I do want to create going into the future are more pieces that also show, you know, the many positive impacts we can and do have on the environment as well. I focused a little bit more on the the negative effects of humans so far. Jill Pelto is an artist and a student at the University of Maine, where she's getting her Master's of Science studying the Antarctic Ice Sheet. Jill, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. You can find images of Jill's art on nextnewengland.org. Coming up, how low-income communities are being disproportionately affected by climate change. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. This week on the show, we're talking about the impact of climate change and rising seas on New England. Low-income communities and communities of color are disproportionately affected by the consequences of climate change. Think about New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina. These areas often suffer from poor air quality, increasing temperatures, and extreme weather. In many of those same communities, residents already live among health hazards like fuel storage units and the toxic remains that come with them. In the city of Chelsea, Massachusetts, residents bear these burdens while much of New England benefits. Here's WBUR's Shannon Dooling. Standing along a three-mile stretch of the Chelsea Creek, Roseanne Bongiovanni, a lifelong Chelsea resident, points out a few of the notable landmarks. That is the storage depot for 100% of the jet fuel that's used at Logan International Airport, 70 to 80% of the region's heating fuel, so that's all of New England, and road salt for 350 communities in, uh, in the New England area. And just down the way is the New England Produce Center, which, in order to supply produce to all of New England, requires a steady stream of trucks coming in and out of the facility, leaving behind emissions. So you'll see in Chelsea that we provide a lot of regional benefits, but those burdens are um, on the backs, essentially, of Chelsea residents. Bon Giovanni heads up an environmental justice group called Green Roots. The organization engages community members in a city where almost 21 percent of the residents live below the poverty line and 60 percent identify as Hispanic or Latino. Hi, my name is Stephanie Alvarado. I'm 17 years old and I'm a Chelsea resident. Alvarado is a member of the Green Roots Eco Crew. The young people come together to learn more about the health and environmental hazards facing their city. The day we met, she and a fellow crew member were preparing for a community event to raise awareness about water quality in the creek. For Alvarado, who's grown up in Chelsea, the work she does with Green Roots is personal. So I have a lot of um, friends and family who do have asthma. Like, it just sucks watching them, like, walk for a long time and then having to pause and pull out their pump and just, you know, take that medication. You know, like, it just, it's heartbreaking to see them having to go through that because of all the things that we are living in. Chelsea residents are living with things like air pollutants. 
Remember that massive pile of road salt that's stored along the creek? It eventually ends up spread across much of New England throughout the winter months, but that stagnant pile may release dust particles in the drier months, kicking up clouds of tiny pollutants that can aggravate chronic conditions like asthma. There's also the emissions from the convoy of trucks moving that salt during the winter months. Daniel Faber is director of the Northeastern University Environmental Justice Research Collaborative. He's crunched some numbers, and according to his findings, Chelsea is one of the most environmentally overburdened places in the state. Communities that lack the political economic power to defend themselves, where residents work longer hours and they have less resources and are less educated, those are the communities that are often targeted for deciding of some of the most dangerous or ecologically hazardous facilities. In 1972, Congress passed the Coastal Zone Management Act, setting up national policies to guide coastal development. Six years later, Massachusetts created Designated Port Areas, or DPAs. These are places set aside to ensure industries dependent on waterways have a place to do business. Not every community, for example, is going to welcome the storage of jet fuel along a waterway. Establishment of DPAs concentrates these industries and guarantees access to businesses. Many coastal New England states have policies around water uses, but nothing quite the same as the DPA classification. Perhaps it's not surprising, then, that so many of these environmental hazards ended up being stored along the Chelsea Creek, one of Massachusetts' 10 designated port areas. Back at the Green Roots office, Alvarado and the Eco Crew are talking about materials they'll need for an upcoming event. Alvarado says learning more about the hazardous facilities in her community has been emotional. You know, we have this creek, but we don't have access to it. It hurt me. It just kind of confirmed that Chelsea is being taken advantage of. And um, growing up in Chelsea, you know, like, you could see that, but I never really knew, like, how true it was to that extent. Alvarado says after she graduates from high school, she wants to stay in Chelsea, working to make the city a healthier place to live. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling. So here's a question. How to make cities like Chelsea more resilient to the effects of climate change? Well, right next door, Boston has been planning for this for a while, and our next guest was at the center of the resilience efforts. Dr. Atia Martin was chief resilience officer for the city of Boston. She is currently CEO and founder of All Aces, Inc., Dr. Atia Martin, welcome to Next. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. How is the city of Boston adapting to rising sea levels? You jumped right in there. So <laughs> actually, um, there's a number of strategies happening that involve the government, the private sector, as well as nonprofits and the, the philanthropic world. Um, and so there's a number of initiatives that are more research-based that are trying to understand um, at a more nuanced level how sea level rise is going to impact Boston. The other types of approaches are more practical um, and more on the traditional um, ways people think about resilience, and that's buildings and infrastructure and thinking about how do we develop infrastructure that can withstand uh, the impacts of sea level rise. And that includes um, the work with 
um, private sector partners uh, as they're developing on areas of the city that are potentially threatened by, um, or not potentially, but are definitely threatened by sea level rise in the seaport area. Um, and so there's some creative ideas around uh, living with water as opposed to trying to fight it and, and understanding that we tend to lose that battle, um, as well as uh, things that are happening more on the socioeconomic level and understanding how the disparate impacts of climate change, including sea level rise, but also including the urban heat island effect uh, and other impacts um, that also disproportionately impact vulnerable populations, uh, which include uh, low to no income communities, people of color, and areas with high concentrations of people with disabilities. Can you give us some specifics about that uh, threat to people of, of lower socioeconomic means, some of the the more uh, people who are already facing struggles in, in and around the city of Boston, what uh, rising sea levels might mean to them specifically. Absolutely. So rising sea level um, is an interesting um, issue that we tend to only focus on the direct impacts, meaning the areas that are visibly going to be impacted, downtown Boston, seaport area, East Boston. But we forget that there's a number of uh, riverine systems in the city of Boston that also get flooded that reach into uh, poor communities and more working class communities, um, as well as the intersection between people who are living in poverty and working class and race. And so there's uh, that piece of it. But then there's also sometimes we forget that climate change is actually more than sea level rise. And I kind of hinted at it before that the urban heat island effect, um, as well as the fact that we get flooded from rainfall, um, as well as the the impacts of um, sea level rise in causing other types of flooding. What that really means is that what we see um, is the outcome of those impacts on communities who are most vulnerable looks very much like the struggles they face in day-to-day life. What we've learned from emergencies, including those from climate change, is that the people who struggle the most in day-to-day life are the people who struggle the most when we face emergencies and disasters, whether from climate change or other types of emergencies. And so this idea of how do we make sure that as we're making these investments in addressing sea level rise, that we are embedding within the way we understand risk. Um, And usually when we talk about risk, we're talking about the loss, um, the potential loss that we could suffer based on the combination of threats and hazards, in this case, climate change, um, as well as the types of vulnerabilities we face. So the infrastructure vulnerabilities, the environmental vulnerabilities, economic, what we oftentimes don't include in that risk analysis and the vulnerability is social vulnerability or people. Um, and how by including that in our understanding of risk, we actually are forced to develop mitigative strategies that support all the types of vulnerabilities that we face. Because ultimately, we are still going to experience the consequences of social vulnerability. We just won't have and made the investments to um, address the issues. What's some advice that you have for other cities and towns around New England that might look at your work in Boston in, in resilience and adaptation 
and and try to to take some lessons? Well, I'll start with something I've mentioned, which is risk analysis. So when we're looking at the potential loss we could face, uh, especially from climate change and sea level rise, that we are including that social vulnerability in there, um, not just because it makes sure that we develop strategies, um, but it also ensures that the investments happen and that we're monitoring the uh, long-term impacts of those investments. The other big piece is looking at non-traditional partnerships um, with the private sector, with communities in particular, especially in communities, um, to be able not just to problem solve through these issues, um, but also look at creative ways to invest in uh, in being able to mitigate the impacts of climate change. Um, and I'd say the third key one is really looking at um, how do we make sure that we're embedding equity into all aspects of the work that we're doing with the reality that when we are trying to work through these issues, it is very easy to do status quo things that can actually perpetuate inequities and make them worse. And so making sure that we are understanding the demographics of our areas, having the most marginalized communities, ensuring they're part of the conversation, and making sure that there's accountability in terms of how we're collecting data, how we understand the approaches that we're taking, and looking at the multiple benefits um, from the work that we're doing. For example, if we are making investments in, in, in infrastructure projects, how do we make sure that as we're doing those infrastructure projects, we're looking at um, equity in how we're doing contracts for those projects and making sure that uh, women-owned businesses and minority-owned businesses and all of the different types of marginalized groups get access to those opportunities, um, which they're usually locked out of. Um, and so being getting creative and, and looking across um, silos to be able to really increase the effectiveness and impact of the the shared challenge that we're all facing. Government can't do it alone. Um, and so uh, we have to be collaboratively working together um, in order to address these issues. They're big challenges, but you know you have to break them down into smaller pieces and tackle them. Uh, there's limited funding um, at the local level, which many cities and towns are struggling with. And I think that reinforces the importance of the types of uh, collaborative partnerships that we need across the private sector, as well as with academia and uh, philanthropy. Mm. Dr. Atia Martin uh, was the Chief Resilience Officer for the City of Boston, and she is currently CEO and founder of All Aces, Inc. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you all, too. Have a wonderful day. A bit further up the coast, the Gulf of Maine Research Institute and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration are teaming up to give 90-minute interactive classes about sea level rise to anyone who's interested. The New England News Collaborative's Lily Tyson attended a recent class in Portland. This fifth grade classroom is a pretty good place to be talking about sea level rise. There's a lobster tank by the door and microscopes on the tables. But the class is 40 adults crowded in to listen to Gail Bonus, the science education program manager for the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. In the past three decades, you can see that the trend has actually increased. So the rate of sea level rise has about tripled in the past a couple of decades. 
but many in the audience didn't need the numbers to tell them that. Have you seen our garage get flooded out? <laughs> yeah, where are you? Chandler's Wharf. I bet you have. Yeah, so right down in the wharf in Portland, the parking garage is flooded. Mm -hmm. uh, we have some stone stairs to the beach in South Portland. They've been there for many years, but in the last couple of years they've been damaged by the winter storms. If so it's the sea level rise in conjunction with the winter storm. Yeah, in conjunction with storm surge. Mm -hmm. A fisherman whose docks flooded, an island split in two by rising waters, and even flooding at the local Whole Foods. The stories kept coming. But as much as sea levels are already rising, it's going to get much worse over the course of the next decades. Bonus shows us a range of estimates, from conservative to extreme. By 2100, she says, Portland could see up to 10.79 feet of sea level rise. She then has us break off into groups to look at an online simulation of what up to six feet of sea level rise will look like throughout Maine. We consider the fact that the Gulf of Maine is warming, and fast. So not only do we have, what is it, 99%, we're warming up faster, 99% faster than right. anyone else. We also have the most, most ocean waterfront right. out of anywhere else in the country, outside of maybe Alaska. We see that many of these smaller islands along the coast would, in fact, be either fully or partially underwater with a six-foot rise in sea level. Yeah, you, know, you hear about it on the news or whatever, and you're, you're thinking, oh, what's a foot, what's a foot? In the house. Right. It kind of makes a big deal. Yeah, it's there's something really sobering about seeing the image. It's like you sort of like I I knew that this was like what it was going to look like, but actually seeing it. For the people in this room, sea level rise is personal. I spoke with one of the students, Jeremy, after the class ended. He's a professor and thinks a lot about how rising sea levels will impact public policy. But to him, there's also something else at stake. Selfishly. Uh, Winslow Park is one of the favorite places we love to go, so just looking at Freeport, it becomes an island. And so for my kids, you know, and that's not that far away, for my kids, if they want to bring their kids there, what's that going to look like? Will it even be accessible at that point? So that to me is where this becomes really real. But how do we again get policymakers and people to get, get those folks to be convinced that we need to take some steps to, to make change? The Gulf of Maine Research Institute is starting small. They hope to reach 1,000 people through these courses. Right now, they're at about 800. By fall, they'll be ready to teach more people around the region about how rising seas will change life in Maine. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lily Tyson. Coming up, the connection between rivers, salt marshes, and the sea. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. As we've been hearing today, New England has already started experiencing the effects of climate change. Sea levels are rising, water temperatures are warming, and major storms are becoming stronger. All of this has caused officials in Rhode Island and the south coast of Massachusetts to wonder, are we prepared for the consequences of these changes? Rhode Island Public Radio environment reporter Avery Brookins traveled to the Westport River where salt marsh islands are rapidly disappearing. You came at the right time because we don't have our poison ivy out yet. 
It's early spring and Eileen Sheehan is leading me through the woods near her house. We make our way to the Westport River, ducking under bare branches and crunching through leafless twigs in the dirt. We reach the river's edge and you can see salt marsh islands in the distance, or as Sheehan says, what used to be islands. They're patches of brown marsh surrounded by sand and mud. But Sheehan, who grew up not too far from the house she lives in now, remembers the salt marshes being a lot fuller. She describes the current condition of the islands as disastrous. It's going so fast that we're going to talk about marsh as a historical abstraction very soon. Salt marshes are wetlands that help protect the coastline from strong waves during storms. They absorb carbon from the atmosphere and serve as nurseries for fish and critical habitat for birds, such as ospreys. Here in the Westport River, you can see ospreys nesting on the marshes on top of man-made perches. But residents started noticing these marsh islands, especially in the west branch of the river, disappearing and quickly. There were a lot of openings in uh, bare spots and places where it was falling in. That's Jack Reynolds. He lives in Westport about two miles from the West Branch and used to fish in the river for striped bass for a living. About 10 years ago after he retired, Reynolds was out on the river in his boat when he made this observation. He says the deterioration of the islands made him very concerned. The river is, is in its entirety is an organism. And if you take any part of an organism, one of the... Uh, important parts take it away, then the whole organism suffers. Reynolds brought the issue to a nonprofit based in New Bedford called the Buzzards Bay Coalition, which works to protect and improve the health of the bay. They ended up doing a study that was released last year. Researchers looked at nearly 80 years worth of aerial images of six of the salt marsh islands in the West Branch. They also collected core samples to examine the marsh grass roots. The coalition science director, Rachel Jacuba, says the results of the study showed that the anecdotes about the islands were scientific facts. Over the last 80 years, they've lost an average about half, almost half of their area over that time period. And the loss of marsh has really accelerated in the last 15 years. The study points to two main reasons for the island's degradation, sea level rise and nitrogen pollution. As sea levels rise, more water inundates the marsh for longer periods of time. It's literally drowning the marsh. And too much nitrogen pollution from septic systems, farms, and polluted stormwater acts as a fertilizer, causing the marsh grass to grow a lot. But then the roots weaken and the marsh banks crumble into the water. There may be other factors behind the disappearance of the marshes, too. Roberta Carvalho, the science director at the Westport River Watershed Alliance, says she understands the urgency felt by residents who want to save the islands, but she says research doesn't happen overnight. Science doesn't always work that way, you know, and you got to take the time, sadly, to justify associated costs and, you know, the economies of what's going on. The Alliance will be conducting their own study to look at erosion from major storms and overabundance of purple marsh crabs and dredging. But residents like Eileen Sheehan are tired of waiting for scientists to agree on what's causing the problem. They want solutions. Back at her house, Sheehan sits on a sofa in her living room where she can see out her window what's left of a salt marsh island. If it were really urgent, we would do something about nitrogen immediately and we'd look for any other causes. But we're not doing that. We're making another study in another year and a, maybe this and maybe that until we're absolutely convinced that we have exactly the right thing. And by that time, there won't be marshes left. 
There are some steps underway to solve the problem. The Buzzards Bay Coalition is working to replace older septic systems. They're one cause of nitrogen pollution. Researchers in the South Coast are also trying to figure out the best way to artificially raise the salt marshes, but the work is in the infant stages. Scientists don't know yet how much sediment is enough, and they're looking to Rhode Island as an example. Salt marsh restoration projects in the Ocean State are already underway. So what's in store for these salt marsh islands in the Westport River? If the degradation continues at the current rate, some scientists say the islands could be completely gone in the next 30 years or so. And that overwhelms town resident Eileen Sheehan with an incredible sense of loss. We've had literally generations of kids going out there and picking up crabs and exploring. Not going to be possible for the next generation. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Avery Brookins in Providence. The salt marshes we just heard about are products of the salty ocean water that flows in and out. But a new study shows that bodies of fresh water around the U.S. are becoming increasingly saline and increasingly alkaline. This is a problem for freshwater ecosystems, and it's being caused by humans. Gene Likens is co-author of the recent study and a distinguished research professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Connecticut. Gene Likens, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. What's new in the study that that you've released recently? Uh, Using long-term data from the U.S. Geological Survey, thanks USGS, uh, (laughs) we uh, were able to look at um, all of the 48 contiguous states and major rivers and streams, draining basin, drainage basins in those areas, and seeing that this is a widespread condition occurring all over. Uh, we knew about the increased saltiness of uh, rivers and streams, and particularly the northeast uh, because of root salt application in the wintertime and in other parts of the eastern United States, but we didn't know that it was so widespread all across the country. Some of this sounds as though it's uh, an issue that you've been following for your entire career, but, but you seem genuinely surprised by, by some of the findings. Is, is this increasing rapidly as far as you're concerned, Gene Likens? Yes, it is. And I think, as I said, the, the, the scope, the magnitude of the changes all across the country surprise me. Um, You're correct. I have been interested in surface waters and their chemistry and their biology for a very long time. And the group that I work with on these studies, uh, we have published before about the increased saltiness of rivers in particularly the northeastern United States. But then when we looked more widely, I was genuinely surprised to see that it was occurring in such a widespread manner. So, so give us an example of, of how this impacts an ecosystem. When, when you have a saltier-than-normal body of water, what does it mean to the animal and plant species that live there? Well, if the salt concentration gets high enough, it can actually be toxic to the organisms that live in that stream or that lake. And some of these uh, rivers that we looked at are large rivers, and they provide uh, water supplies for uh, major urban areas. For example, Washington, D.C., the water supply there has shown an increase in saltiness. So that, unfortunately, from 
our point of view at least, um, salt, and we're talking about table salt, sodium chloride, is not regulated as a primary pollutant in the United States, so that um, the saltiness um, has to get very high before it's reported as uh, of something of concern, but not regulated. So if the, the saltiness uh, gets high enough in the water for a person that uh, might be um, uh, salt sensitive, hypertensive, or whatever, then drinking an additional uh, amount of salt uh, in, in the water that they drink uh, is, a, is a hazard. Uh, so it affects uh, both the organisms that live in the water bodies, and it also affects those of us that use that water in the way I just described. And then another more obvious way is um, we're all familiar in the Northeast after a heavy winter like we've had this year, where a lot of salt is added to the roadways to um, try to keep them safe. But we see all kinds of vegetation near the, the highway that's turned brown, and that's because of the salt that has run off when, when the snow has melted. So that's a local effect. And then people that have individual wells in those areas are often finding them being polluted by the salt runoff. Of course, another thing that we're used to here in the Northeast is that with all of this salt, you don't just see plants dying by the side of the road. You also see our infrastructure, the bridges, the roadways. Oh. Everything is just dissolving, Gene, in front of our eyes. Talk about that impact. <laughs> yes, uh, our, our, our automobiles and trucks and vehicles that we run on, on the highways, uh, leading to costs of billions of dollars, it has been estimated. Uh, but yes, the, the bridges uh, and the structures uh, corrode and have to be replaced or constantly maintained. Uh, cement uh, highways or cement surfaces are uh, uh, usually highly corroded by high salt concentrations. Even in your garage, if you drive into your garage in the wintertime and, and salt drips off your car, uh, next spring, you're going to see little pits all over the, the surface of the cement in your garage, and that's because of the salt corrosion uh, from the what's falling off your car. Given what we just said about the, the use of road salts here in New England, is this the part of the country that is most impacted as you look at the lower 48 states? Is this the place where we're finding the saltiest rivers and streams? No, not, not necessarily, but it is a, a major area because of the amount of salt uh, that's used. But the upper Midwest, for example, uh, uses huge amounts of salts in the wintertime. We, we add the salt because it's cheap, it's inexpensive uh, to purchase, and it melts uh, ice and snow in the wintertime so that our roadways are safer and we can drive at higher speeds. So the reason for it is very clear, but we would suggest that there are uh, things that we should be doing instead of adding more and more salt uh, to roadways. We should be doing it better, more, more intelligently. You talk about uh, perhaps your inability to communicate some of these ideas to people who want to be able to drive fast on, on winter roads. Uh, one of your claims to fame is that you were 
able to help communicate the idea of, of acid rain being a primary problem for the United States and other nations to, to tackle. Do you think that this is one of those issues that we need to have a different sort of communication strategy around the, the real importance of the salinity of our waterways? Oh, I do. And I guess that's one of the reasons I'm talking to you. We have a lot of really smart people, uh, and smart people can figure out uh, clever solutions. We can do much better. We know what the problem is and, and are inclined to try to resolve it. Gene Likens is a distinguished research professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Connecticut, president of the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies, and founder of the Hubbard Brook Ecosystem Study. Thank you so much for joining us once again, Gene. I appreciate it. Thank you for uh, your interest in, in this research, and uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, John. We're going to finish our show in a place that's between the saltwater marshes we heard about and these freshwater rivers. It's a place called Head of Tide. And as Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill found, there's a fascinating biology found in places like this that are on the edges, intermingled habitats where biodiversity can flourish. I'm straddling a lumpy bridge, arching over an old stone dam. Long Island Sound is only a few miles away, and Interstate 95 is even closer. But here, wrapped in trees and the sounds of flowing water, it all feels so far away. Today we're at the head of tide on the Monuncatisic River in Westbrook and Clinton. With me is Steve Gephardt. He's a supervising fisheries biologist with the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. It's sort of where one ecosystem ends and gives it up to another ecosystem. At high tide, he says the area is brackish, a mixture of fresh and salt water, which is important for migratory fish, like eels, alewives, or blueback herring. This is the area where their bodies adapt to the changing salinity. These heads of tides are critical for making that transition for these animals that migrate back and forth. Protected plants mingle with invasive Phragmites. Around the dam is an eel pass and fishway managed by deep, the agency is also tearing down some old structures to make the area safe before it's open to hikers and hunters. As our interview ends, Gephardt pauses and looks up. So there goes an osprey right now, probably checking out the fish run just like we are. It's a beautiful sight. Heavy wing beats lock into the osprey's signature M-shaped silhouette. And both of us watch as the raptor silently soars over one of Connecticut's least developed heads of tide. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill on the Monuncatisic River. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson and Ali Oshinsky. Carlos Mejia is our digital editor. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcast, with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwabstone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It is powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.